0: Hello, and welcome to the all-new Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Biles, literary director here at the bookshop. If you enjoy these conversations and would like to spend even more of 2022 at Kilometre Zero in Paris, you can now subscribe for just three euros a month. For that, you'll get regular bonus episodes, hand-picked classic interviews from our archives, as well as early access to complete chapters from friends of Shakespeare and Company, read Ulysses. You can now sign up directly in Apple Podcasts or, for users of all other podcast apps, through Patreon. Links to both are available in the show notes. All money raised through these subscriptions goes to supporting Friends of Shakespeare and Company, the bookshop's non-profit, created to fund our non-commercial activities, from the Upstairs Reading Library to the Writers in Residence programme to our charitable collaborations and our free events. We're very grateful for your support. Today, I'm joined in the writer's studio by Vanessa Onwamezi, author of Dark Neighbourhood. A collection of seven short stories, Dark Neighbourhood resists interpretation and elides description, shifting between voices and styles with astonishing deafness and grace. Spaces, territories are important to the book, how we inhabit them and how they shape us, as our attempts to understand how not just our minds, but our entire beings are affected when we pass from darkness into light and back again. In many ways, Dark Neighbourhood is a deeply political collection, although these politics are expressed not by hitching the stories to one ideology or another, but in Onwemesi's approach to language, its vocabularies and its structures, and the various ways she deconstructs it. In short, Dark Neighbourhood is as compelling as it is confounding, and that's why I'm very grateful to get the chance to discuss it with the author today. Vanessa, welcome to Shakespeare and Company. Thank you. Um, Where I'd like to start is with how a collection like this comes together um because when readers get the chance to to experience these stories and i use that term experience <laughs> very advisedly um they'll notice that there are various different voices various different perspectives and yet some sort of common ground seems to seems to underlie them uh, could you talk a little bit about was there a sort of a foundational story that gave rise to the others perhaps Dark Neighborhood uh, the title story or did they kind of come together in a slightly
1: more dispersed way um so I I really like the term the use of the term experience I'll say firstly (laughs) I think that um so Dark Neighborhood was the first story I wrote in this collection but it was a different version Mm -hmm. so I I wrote that version um the premise was the same Mm -hmm. it it was just a very different story and I'd always intended to rewrite it and actually it ended up being the last story I actually wrote or Mm. rewrote in the collection (laughs) but I do think that Dark Neighborhood uh, and the kind of sensibility of that story set the tone for Mm -hmm. the rest of the stories Um, I said in uh, actually in the interview I did yesterday that when um, I was deciding the order of the stories, mm-hmm. um, I kind of thought to myself that Dark Neighborhood, uh, the story, kind of contained the others yes. in some way. That makes a lot of sense, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, it, the kind of, like, within it, like, and kind of w- within its ambiguity, mm-hmm. there is this kind of uh, potential for all, everything else. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, they they kind of, uh, they're kind of all different in tone, like the voice of each mm. story after that is different. But um, somebody called it, which I really like, somebody who really liked the collection and called it a constellation. Mm, okay, yeah, yeah. Which I really like. Um, and in a way, um, I had described it as kind of... Uh, like a constellation which is set within a kind of vastness uh-huh. of space yeah. yeah so like there's a sense uh so dark neighborhood kind of is the vastest vastness that contains mm-hmm. them um but there's also the sense that there could be other stories yes. out there The these stories are kind of the the, light, the lights that you see but they're other things out there because mm-hmm. um, I have a sense that there could be other stories there could have been other stories yeah. that came out of this collection That's they're just not the ones that mm-hmm. I happen to write yeah 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 no it
0: does make a lot of sense let's talk a little bit about Dark Neighbourhood as a story because it is it's a, obviously it's the title story of the collection mm-hmm. it's also the first story it's also I think the longest or certainly one of the longest stories in the collection and it also in some ways stands apart from the others i think in its tone and its conception in some way so i was trying to think of a way to articulate what kind of story it is um and the sort of the shorthand i settled on for myself was a kind of corrupted fable in as much as there's there's much that is fable-like about it uh but also in certain ways and in certain references it's quite grounded In our world, so there are references to countries or objects that that are very much part of our world. So, would so that I don't give too much away or talk about in a way that sort of betrays too much of our to our to our listeners. Would you be able to just introduce the story and set it up for for people who haven't read it?
1: Yeah. So I try. I don't want to make it sound too boring, but. something about i always describe it as a cue which that sounds mm. terrible but that is sort of what it is so where when we uh, the story opens we're introduced to the central character mm. who is waiting essentially like the term waiting mm. is um repeated quite a lot i think throughout the collection actually mm. um and this story introduces that kind of terminology um so they're waiting they've been waiting for a long time and then they're in a big line of people mm. in front of this gate um and they're waiting for that to open yeah and i suppose this from arising kind of out of that central character and out of the premise everything else comes so what do you do when you have to wait in the same place for a long time mm. and you want you to keep your place mm. in there Q. Yeah, kind of uh, like how do you survive? How do you um, how do you keep your place in line? And what mm. kind of like animosities and hostilities and and friendships also build from that? Yeah. yeah. So that is kind of what the um, like a kind of overview. Um, and the story opens on with this list of objects that our central character has mm. amassed. Yes, and they have kind of uh, been a bit savvy because not everyone has this but Mm. they're the one that's amassed all this stuff and is able to kind of then have a sense of control um, over or have a a bit of power over Mm. other people because they can determine the price that somebody has to pay to get something they want Um, and they have a friend who is kind of an adjacent I'd say also a central character they're mainly two Two or three central characters, and um and this fre- this friendship allows them to kind of you know work together uh, it gives them a bit more strength, mm. i suppose in their situation, yeah, and yeah, I mean that's it everything that happens arises out of that, mm-hmm. I suppose that like their what they're waiting for and why they're waiting at this gate is kind of the central ambiguity Mm. because they're waiting for kind of abstract things. They've kind of been promised something by the gate. And um, I suppose there, like, I feel a kind of connection to, there is a connection to something more concrete, Mm. even though that concept is quite abstract. But I think you can all, we can all relate to the sense of, waiting for something to happen. Yeah. Yeah yeah. And um, and this unknowing that uh, unknowing of whether it ever will uh-huh. you know and I suppose that is the feeling out of which the story comes. Yeah. That's the more kind of abstract part of the story. Mm-hmm. Dark neighbourhood one bottle of water, 320 books, 100 packets of cigarettes, 50 lighters, three boxes of toothpicks, a baby bottle, five litres of whiskey, one of gin, 100 of vinegar, six kitchen knives, 90 tampons with applicators, 95 without, a small crate of ginger ale, A box of crispy fried onions, mismatched earrings, rings, bracelets, a love letter, two vials of insulin, five bags of glucose, earplugs, a month's supply of contraceptive pills, a letter of recommendation, eight bank statements, a lemon zester, thirty hairpins, ten syringes, a half pint of blood. Now Gigi's got a gun and she, ah, adds it to the pile. Rolls onto her backside and smokes. Later, I'll tell you about how she dies, but for now, she's smoking. Draws long into her lungs and enjoys it. Like women in advertisements, enjoyed chocolate. Savoured, loved, delected, sensuated. Enough of that, full stop. She adds it to the pile and... An ellipsis as I drift again. The worst thing about a gunshot wound, if it doesn't kill you right away. Infection. Necrosis. A body eaten away by time. The direction of decay. My fingers smell metallic. Touch a touch of the barrel. It's hot as we've been blessed this summer with plenty of it from on high. All is lit with a blaze of shine yellow, so lucky, and I for one can't get enough, can't get enough of this sunshine, I say aloud, and the people around me say it with me, say it all the time for as long as the sun is with us, say it, if the heat burns you, you're alive, so say it, what else is there to do? In the beginning, we checked our phones, constantly, of course, for the time, for the news. But batteries die and one by one the lights go out. One by one you care none more about time. Take in the sun and try to forget that your life has become a-waiting. As you realise that your life was always a-waiting. Our pile is the biggest fall as far as my eyes can see in daylight. The view had been obstructed by trees and hedges. Had been. Early days. Brambles stubborn are still there. To be hacked away or burned, despite their bearing fruit. Only to return back, hacked again. And so I see now, further across the expanse and watch... People huddled amongst tree stumps, which will shoot out young tendrils for the spring, which we will reduce to stumps again. Content to be among the stumps, are they? Choices, to sit at the foot of a tree stump or a pile of books. The two choices we can make. So lucky. Gigi's head a greyish cloud and me, I sit on pile of books looking as if I have something to do. Catch sight of a gloomy figure walking towards us. Most people languish in the heat. People relaxed as anything. One of the better days. So why the gloom of this one? Closer. I recognise the shoulders sloped as an arrow. Sharp, down-angled. The head shaved low. The lax chin of friend. Since the beginning Long time friend Like summoned from my Recollection Remembered figure Towards me Flush with red Face a brow dropped Reaches my books And sits Purple in worry and wrinkles Knuckles Claws at a shoe Thin sole Reveals calloused heel pressed to the brake a graze or bite infected blood. Clouds under skin and breathes out. The man breathes. Once. Again. Breathes out and down. Nose to knees and hands. pray each side of a head broken into halves. Stevie, are you going to talk? I say. Leaves talk. Rocks, tree stumps, the burning fires. Talk, he scratches out that nasty heel. Are you tired, I say, in love. That your back told me as you walked away and arm looped into hers. Long time no see. Ah, some words are in the right order. Help is why you're here. He closes his lips. Jaw tight and jowls droop his pride me i feel no pride ever then from outside our heads high above words ring aloud love is the hardest thing to do radio tone air shaken a flock of quiet birds gray striped strange curled beaks flee from the shrubbery rough ugly bark some kind of ridiculous Stevie says, and looks around like casting judgment on all but unseen fragments of dust. Those statements, piped out at regular intervals, make nonsense for our ears. Fatherly condescension, a kind of love. Perhaps, perhaps that's it. Stevie is here, grazed, looking rough and in love, after all. By the time those words reach my patch, they'll be mixed up and some words swapped out for other words. The statement will make another sense or another nonsense by then, he says. Me, breaking off a chain thought on love, lavender-coloured. I do feel calmer for having heard it. Yes, it is calming now you mention it. I feel better. Better? Yes, how awful. How wretched he smiles a flash, and now breathing a normal pace, looks at me with eyes a syrup ready to pour. We want to get married. Well, congratulations, suck in your jowls you look old and defeated. What's wrong then? A ring lost. There's a problem out and what do you want from me? I had wondered if a pause and again. A pause. It might have come to you. Smart. Objects seem to reach me eventually. Even if I'm fourth in the chain of digestion, at some point or another, it's in my pile. Gigi keeps inventory, I say. She's curled up asleep with her favourite rough blanket and pillow. We the ones with luxuries. The cigarette, half-burned, lies beneath her open mouth. Her hair is gold, as applies to hair and not the gold of a ring, comma, another thought. Or that which might be painted on a cheap picture frame, as well as a grey of pencil shaded across paper lightly striping her head. Mine is black as far as I know. Only see it when I'm pulling it out. Let's look. We might get lucky. So lucky, he says. The words sound flat coming out of his mouth. We look through the jewellery, disorganised on shelves. Some earrings I get as ones and some in twos. Rings, there are many, but some are cheap and some not so. Gigi's better at telling the difference. With the jewellery, I keep other metals. Brass knuckles I acquired not long ago in exchange for insulin. Insulin given for a clean pair of socks, which I had gotten in bulk after an accident. They needed blood. Pills for pain and bandages, cloth for cloth. Plaster of Paris I threw in at no extra cost. Good business. My list at the beginning was not exhaustive. And all this. Stuff. The descendants of a single earring. Given in exchange for a packet of nuts. Because she was hungry and I, missing my earring, was hungry to feel like myself again
0: because it put me in mind of, of, of two things. Um, and it's been a while since I've read it, so I may get the details wrong, but there is, I think it's in Kafka's The Trial, there is a fable which is told about a man essentially waiting to pass yeah. through a door or a gate or something yeah. like that. But it's very much a sort of a, a pure fable, in a sense, I guess. Um, and messages coming through the gate. And this is something which also happens in, in Dark Neighborhood. And I want to talk a little bit about those messages later. But then there was this sense of a kind of, yes, I said a kind of groundedness and the cues and the waiting also put me in mind. And I guess this sense of kind of objects and detritus and things like that put me in mind of the the images we see, for example, recently of uh, Ukrainians trying to pass into the European Union or to Britain, like this sense of people fleeing something. But for what, they're not, uh, they're not entirely sure. And one thing I, I loved about the story was the fact that you seemed able to kind of, to balance these two sort of, these two elements in a way. And I'm just curious as a kind of, as a technical feat, and I was interested to hear you say that you'd, you wrote it and then rewrote it. Was that balance a difficult thing to strike?
1: Um, yeah. I mean, the, the story I did what I struggled with the most in this story is actually the voice, Mm -hmm. the tone of voice. Um, I think in, in terms of the balance, like the balancing of the kind of whole mood and rhythm of Mm -hmm. the story. And as you say, the kind of sense of the sense of the story, I Mm -hmm. suppose that wasn't too hard. I think with that you, I kind of have to have a bit of faith, Mm -hmm. I suppose. I think I always have the sense that the whole story is there somewhere. You know, it's yeah. it's not that I'm inventing it. It's there and I'm just writing it, essentially. Mm, okay. So within that comes... A, it, maybe it's a... I think it's something that a lot of writers feel. But with, with that, a lot of the responsibility I suppose for constructing it Mm -hmm. is kind of removed so maybe it's a kind of handy trick so I just take it one word at a time one Uh sentence at a time and then I go back and layer over so it becomes a bit more complex Mm -hmm. in layers rather than my um, writing it all out um, from start to finish as you read it on the page so technically that wasn't uh, too difficult I think it just, uh, I kind of just trust it to become what it becomes, yeah, basically. Yeah, yeah. So everything you read in it, in it is really, not necessarily what I intended to mm. be in it, but I'm very happy that <laughs> it's ended up that way. It, and the main thing for me, I think, is, um, I think just the staging was, because the premise is relatively simple. Mm-hmm. Um, again, technically, it's, Like, in terms of uh, creating an environment, it's not that hard. I think it is quite difficult to... um, It's really difficult to write a a story where nobody moves, really. Like, it's it's actually quite hard to... When nobody really goes anywhere, Uh Yeah, (laughs) it's quite hard to keep that going. But I think because I had the first version of it... Mm -hmm. um, I had kind of dipped my toe in the water yeah. very long yeah. ago and by the time I got to writing it again, I don't know, it had a bit more practice, mm. was a bit more confident, and I just um I think very quickly had in mind these kind of touch points over what would happen. Yeah. yeah I yeah. didn't know that it would be as long as it is. Mm. So there's also that and I think because it is quite um reality bending mm-hmm. so it not everything it, you're not kind of completely married to the realism of it yeah, so there's yeah. a lot of kind of twisting in and out of people's mm. uh, consciousness yeah, yeah yeah um which means that you i guess that's how i handled the kind of problem uh-huh. of of space yeah. in the story
0: That's fascinating. There's lots in what you just said that I'd like to unpick. I want to come back to this thing about sort of your writing process is kind of one word at a time. Yeah. Am I right in thinking that you came to writing through poetry before prose?
1: Um, No, definitely the first things I wrote were prose. Oh, okay. Um, But poetry is really important to me. Mm -hmm. I read a lot of it. I do write poetry Mm -hmm. as well. Um, and I think when I was first, I did a creative writing MA Uh and when I, I did a poetry module and for that period we only read poetry and only wrote poetry and I think that was really kind of pivotal in terms Mm -hmm. of my writing style yeah, yeah, yeah. or at least my sense of words, Mm. I think. The kind of sense of precision, Mm -hmm. um... With words and their placement, which I yes. think poetry is a real, really good kind of um, is a really good lesson in understanding words, basically yeah. in yeah. their kind of singularity, mm-hmm. I suppose.
0: And it also, I, I, I wondered that because, mean, um, maybe this is again sort of a bit of not particularly helpful shorthand, but I felt a sort of a poet's sensibility, yeah. in as much as I think the stories don't. Um, feel kind of obliged to convey a clear meaning or even necessarily a clear arc in the way that I think a lot of short story writers are trained to do. Mm-hmm. And they felt much more like a poem because, and that's why I used the word experience earlier, and I, th- I think one or other of us have used the word feeling <laughs> so far in this conversation. I think that that is where these stories are really, really powerful, is kind of evoking a sense of place, a sense of person, um, and a sense of maybe sort of emotional turmoil of some of some sort, which I kind of associate more with with poetry than with with the short story form.
1: Yeah, that is true actually. And um, and with that, yeah, I would definitely say I have more of a poet sensibility mm-hmm. than uh, if if I had to say if I had to choose, I suppose, (laughs) if I had to put like, put myself on a spectrum, Uh it would be, yeah, I'd be there somewhere if Mm -hmm. poetry were here. And so, although I didn't come through poetry in the sense that I wasn't a poet before I was Mm. a writer, I would, I am still kind of, um, I've always lent towards Mm. that end of the spectrum. So I'd say I, like if I came through anything it would, would be music okay like I, interesting I would maybe in another life i or maybe in this life, I <laughs> will like, compose <laughs> this time, yeah, um i uh will or would have composed music, uh-huh. I don't know if for a living, but like in some way, yeah, and um, you know, while I was at school, definitely music was the you know my. Main hobby outside mm-hmm. of school, yeah, yeah, um, and I. So I think, um, and obviously, poetry is adjacent mm. to music, yeah, and around that also like art, especially painting. Mm. Um, and I think you absorb a, a work of art or a painting or whatever in a similar way to, that you absorb a poem, where mm. it's an experience, yes. Um, and it's true. I in, when I found a way into poetry, mm. because for I think a while I, I didn't really. Poetry and also artwork actually mm. is always something I wanted to get, but never really felt yeah. like I did yeah. get it. Really, I have exactly the same thing,
0: and I've talked about this on this podcast before <laughs> yeah. with both poetry and visual arts. That I always felt I lacked a
1: training yeah. that
0: was necessary to in some way engage with them.
1: Yeah, exactly. I was always, and I it's not that I, ne- I didn't feel pushed out of mm. that world it was more just I didn't really understand what it was all about I mm. suppose and then but I think ev- actually uh it's not a training mm. well, I realize it's not a training it's just especially poetry there's so much of it and mm. it's just not all going to be for you yeah yeah, yeah. but uh, I did kind of stumble upon uh, some poetry by Allen Ginsberg. Like, oh, yeah. I can't remember. That must have been not long ago. I was maybe like twenty six, mm-hmm. twenty five, twenty six, and then suddenly that was my kind of door in. Yeah, I suddenly yeah, yeah. I read those poems, and there was something there that I really understood. Mm-hmm. I don't. I couldn't tell you what it was. Yeah. and I think following that I'd always wanted to import that sense mm-hmm. into uh what I was writing in prose yeah, yeah, yeah so I think you're definitely right when you say sensibility mm. because um yeah they just a lot of poems as you say don't have a clear meaning but mm-hmm. they try and they communicate something that is I find in many ways much more powerful than something which is kind of very neatly concluded.
0: Yeah, I suppose because with, with, with neat conclusions, there's all you can always pick holes in them. You can always sort of find find the fault if something gets closed off too too perfectly.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And also, I think with a new, neat conclusion, if you feel like you've got it, you do, you can just close the door and walk mm. away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I think. Um, I found when I've had like the most powerful experiences reading something or looking at an artwork or something like that, it's the n- the unknowing yes. that is the I find has created um, like a kind of potential mm-hmm. in it like kind of leaves. There's a door in you that's left open yes. where it might be yeah. closed by these kind of poems or uh, short stories or works of art or whatever. Mm-hmm and and I've always found that a real gift like it's a real gift to be kind of opened up like that (sighs) and um, and usually when you uh, read so when you read or you look with your mind Mm -hmm. and you think you've got something you shut that door and then and that's it you're not affected at all Mm -mm. even though I think it. initially feels more satisfying to feel like you've got something sure, yeah, yeah. so it's very attractive and uh-huh. not and obviously there's no problem with reading for entertainment mm. or reading things that are very polemical intellectual uh-huh. like they all belong as part of the kind of literary mm. world but you yeah f- f- for me in my writing mm. and what I wanted to do I wanted that kind of thing I wanted that experience and to create that
0: yeah and and that brings us on to I'd like to talk about I guess the sort of the politics of the stories because I as I said in the introduction for me it struck me as a a very political collection but not in a polemical sense necessarily not in a in an ideological sense but in I suppose in two ways in a sort of a sense of Um, I guess speaking very very broadly a sense of sort of social class and social position so there are sort of there are reflections in um, stories like Cuba for example about the kind of that sort of bring up the subject of kind of the alienation of work I suppose Mm -hmm. Um, and there are other sort of um, I think in the I think it's in Green Afternoon yes that you feel this sense of a kind of a fragmented divided society and the sort of the character the sort of the the principal character kind of moving through and between these different sort of fragments of society um and so i'd I'd be interested in in your reflection on that but also on lang the way you work with language as a potentially sort of political thing and as i mentioned to you before we started recording i've been working a lot with Ulysses, at the moment. Mm-hmm. And one thing that really interested me in some analysis I read of that and Joyce's kind of deconstruction of the English language was that the people he's writing about, English would have only been their language for one or sometimes two generations. And it was kind of an imposed colonial language where previously the parents would have been speaking Irish. And I'm, I'm interested if this, your sort of deconstruction of of language and grammar is in some way a kind of a sort of a political act uh in relation to the sort of let's say the literary sort of hegemony (laughs) that we that, that, that we often see
1: um i i wouldn't say that it's a deliberate political act um i think my primary interest and my primary focus is always just finding a means of expression, mm-hmm. really, like the the breaking down of language for me um, has come through uh, trying to express something with more clarity than mm. um, more clarity than I suppose. Uh, what am I trying to say? More clarity than what I suppose, mm-hmm. but just more clarity than a regular sentence. Yeah. can give it because I I could have written this differently mm-hmm. but it didn't feel satisfying to me to write it, uh, it in plain English. If yeah. You'd call yeah. It. Um and but also I think like I do have to credit um certain writers like Amos Tutuola okay. who um like there is a in you know reading the palm wine drinkers Mm -hmm. like there is a political element I know Mm -hmm. when it was published in like 1952 Mm -hmm. I think um, it was very political because he was a Yoruba writer Mm -hmm. writing in English but it was a kind of pigeon English with a different syntax and there's this big debate about uh, African writers and writing in English Mm -hmm. around this book Mm -hmm. Um, so I I think the politics of it is kind of uh appropriated almost by this book or in, imported mm-hmm. in a way it's not something that I um haven't considered at all uh-huh. um and I I suppose in a roundabout way uh, like the way I have come to literature uh I don't I mean I don't know if I want to call myself an outsider but in many ways it does feel like that just mm-hmm. because perhaps i i didn't study literature mm-hmm. i guess sure. and in yeah. in many senses you can feel like a bit of an outsider in in that way mm-hmm. um and it but it's kind of freed me up to maybe use english in a way um without any of the kind of um rigidity or without mm-hmm. any of the weight of the status quo I suppose yeah, just yeah, because yeah. I didn't know it mm-hmm. um and i i have had my own doubts like i have kind of questioned my use of punctuation mm-hmm. and it sometimes you actually you forget like i could be saying oh no it's not political but i it's very easy to forget how you were feeling three years ago yeah, of when you were writing yeah, yeah. something, unless you keep a diary. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and I do remember I had my own kind of, um, kind of wrestling with, uh, what I was doing and my confidence in what I was mm. doing. There was a period where I was like, Oh, I, you know, I'm not using punctuation correctly enough mm. and I'm not, um, I had a sense that I didn't know enough Mm -hmm. yet to be to call myself a writer right okay Um, but then at a certain point I actually after reading Tutuola and reading an essay uh, I can't remember the name of the essay now which is annoying but (laughs) um, it was addressing this issue of punctuation Mm. and um, this debate that was going on around that book and actually the kind of essay really obviously it was uh, really justifying tutuola 's use of language, and actually it did help me kind of muster um more confidence mm. in what I was doing yeah um so I suppose the answer to your question is kind of yes and no, ah. like its origins are really uh of the my use of language are really in expression, mm. but there 's all this stuff political stuff that is kind of swept along with that yeah yeah um. And uh, I was going to say one more thing, but I've forgotten what it was now. Um, I I suppose that also the I read everything out loud, Mm -hmm. going back to process. I read everything aloud when I'm writing. So I do think there is this sense of um, orality in Mm. the work, which in many ways from being from a more musical background uh-huh. I'm much more comfortable in yeah, and i yeah, found yeah. like once I've got over my kind of slight, slight fear of reading in public and uh-huh. now I feel like very comfortable and um, I wouldn't say I prefer but I do really like to give people the experience of hearing the stories read mm. by me basically because yeah, yeah, yeah. I think they're is a equally valid dimension mm-hmm. in the oral. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Uh, um, I'd like to talk a little bit about your characters, because one of the things I think is kind of quite disconcerting as a reader is, for the most part, the complete lack of backstory we're given. We're sort of, we're dropped into situations with the characters. And I think, you know, a lot of, let's say, more conventional short story writers might sort of, yeah, take a moment, a few paragraphs in to kind of to to set the scene or kind of tell us who we're with, and I can't think of any specific examples in the collection where you you do that. And in addition, you sometimes don't name your characters. Yeah. Um, I don't think any of them have names. Yeah. One. And so I'm I'm really curious about that as a sort of um, as an artistic choice, and also from a sort of writing perspective. Are the kind of backstories and lives of the the characters? fleshed out for you or do they in some sense remain equally mysterious to you as they as they do to the readers
1: um yeah they are mysterious uh-huh. to me uh i basically i meet the character at the same point the reader does right. which is in the story i do think that the story um the the character is still central mm-hmm. to the story but I suppose, like, going back to what we were saying about experience and, um, you know, co- comparisons between poetry and painting and all that, uh, the character is central, and then everything in that character's environment relates back to the character. Yeah. So everything you might want to know about the character is there, but mm-hmm. it's just not com- necessarily communicated as backstory, Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think. Um Everything, uh, yeah, like a, most, not all of the stories, but most of them are in the first person, mm-hmm. so you can um, kind of decode, or not decode, but you can read the reality that this of this re- character's consciousness, I guess, and within that contained is contained everything that character has been through. Mm-hmm. So, I suppose my reporting backstory. I it's just a different way of doing it i suppose yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I it's not like i'm against that and i think the short story form allows you to kind of get away with mm-hmm. <laughs> with that yeah um but i think th- that um my reporting the backstory to you may not be for the kind of for the sensibility of these stories may not be as effective as just showing you how how this character is conscious mm. of the world around them. Yeah. Um, and within that is just contained everything that they've ever been through, oh. as it is for all of us. Yeah, like. yeah, yeah. Um, so, for example, with a story like Green Afternoon, the actions of that character kind of tell you a lot. And I, I know that they're not grounded in a kind of the realism that we live in, mm. but also the things not every person would launch their own investigation uh-huh. a murder investigation after but like it's kind of a evidence of the response to the trauma of the event yes and also i think that character's guilt and there are i think there are bits of backstory kind of dropped in uh-huh. like we learn a little bit that the character sure. had a brother and their mother and how they the circumstances of their upbringing but then I think I only give maybe what the story needs and mm. then everything else yeah, is yeah. kind of just left out. I which suppose. is I- ideal
0: for a short story. Yeah, really. yeah. I, I'd like to slightly take issue with that idea of like kind of the the realist world we live in, because I think actually one thing that the stories in Dark Neighbourhood do very well is the to convey some a, a sense of sort of experience and existence, which is closer to what how how, how we are at least how i <laughs> experience and live life than is portrayed in what you might call a realist novel which is often a very sort of smoothed down very kind of constructed uh very i guess kind of objectivized uh view of reality and i think this kind of fluid um sort of experiential uh contact with with the world is much closer to the to
1: to, the to reality of human consciousness yeah. yeah i I completely agree, and I suppose when I said the world we live in i get i, I guess you would know what I mean in the sense of Very much. our agreed the yes. uh, the yeah, yeah, reality yeah. that we've all agreed yeah. like at the moment you and I in this room are agree, uh, we kind of agree, okay, there's a table here and there yeah. you know, and we're doing this. And to borrow an expression from i think uh internet conspiracy theorists the consensus reality Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i like that i'm going to take that one you'll hear me saying that all the time now um but yeah and and then there is it's true i think um if anything what is political uh, like what is the real politics of this book mm. is this question mm. not even, it's not even a questioning it's a A real statement that reality the consensus reality is often what we talk about when we use the word but um it's a real like representative of a kind of paradigm shift Mm. i had in my life Mm, where i kind of started to understand that um there's something else to reality that is kind of re- rela- is related to consciousness mm-hmm. that it's true like when I was writing these and I think again the language comes in here as well in that the, this kind of breaking down of the language kind of mirrored the breakdown of reality mm-hmm. that I had and lots of people have and then in order to kind of better express uh a truer sense of reality or a sense of reality that I find to be Ah. truer than um, if I'd been writing something that was supposed to mirror or reflect this consensus reality that we all have which in literature is usually called realism yes Um, but uh, I think which is why I'm attracted to poetry Mm -hmm. because it's even if it's um, very kind of Realism, like because of the way it's constructed, you you can't call it realism in the Mm. same way a lot of prose is uh, called realism. Yeah. So I do think more often than not, it hits upon again this kind of more vivid, Mm. more true Mm. reality. You could call it. Yeah. yeah, That sometimes we sense. Some people sense more than others. Mm but which is there, but which can't, actually can't, ironically can't be put into words, yeah, yeah, but yeah. it can be evoked, which is why, um, again, we talk about experience, mm-hmm. because you can't tell somebody what you, you can't tell, body, tell somebody uh, this experience in a way that they, li- they will experience it. You yeah, can only kind yeah. of like indirectly kind of um, shape it mm-hmm. out of words yeah, and hope yeah. that... Uh, that part of uh, somebody else recognises it yeah, in a way. Yeah,
0: yeah. Which brings me on to um, something, again, I referenced in the introduction, which seems to be a sort of a, a recurrent theme, I guess, in the in the book. And of course, the word exists in, in the title. Is this idea of darkness and light. And one of the things that kept coming back to me while reading these stories was almost the sense that, in a sort of slightly contradictory way, your characters seem to see clearer in the dark than they do in the light. Like there is a moment like whenever light is brought in like into a situation, whether sort of uh, actual sort of sunlight, for example, or the kind of the illumination of, of knowledge or something like that, it seems in some way to 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 make it difficult more difficult to, to see or to understand or to apprehend things. And once you get in sort of to the darkness, whether that be the darkness of night or the darkness of the deep sea, there seems to come uh, a clarity with that.
1: Yeah, that's so interesting. (laughs) I hadn't... Nobody's ever said that before. Um, It's true, because the the epigraph of the book is Night is also a sun. Mm. And so... And with that, I suppose... So that sentence is taken from Zarathustra, or Thus Spoke Mm. Zarathustra, and it's taken from a passage where... um, Zarathustra's kind of um I don't know, th- this real what's the word I'm looking for? Kind of delicious paragraph where he's talking about I didn't mean to use the word delicious, that's what <laughs> that's what came that's out. It's a great word. <laughs> so um uh where he's saying midnight is also midday, mm-hmm. pleasure is also pain and, and it's kind of it's this duality that we kind of inhabit, yeah, have to yeah, yeah. have to inhabit as to exist in the world um, and then there's this kind of out space outside of that which I suppose again, I, like I've used a lot of words like unknowing and mm. ambiguity and I think darkness for a lot of us represents that side of mm. things where as we were just saying, there are no words there, there's no way to properly describe that um, and I think perhaps a lot of the characters um, are going through this kind of dark night I mm-hmm. suppose yeah that, that yeah. is what a lot of the characters are in that place where they've kind of had to been forced to let go of their certain mm. certainties yeah. which can plunge you into a very dark place um, and you know symbolically in the world is often represented by the absence of you know natural light or Mm. any light and it's true I mean like there's one sentence which kind of runs through my mind a lot Uh, one and it's in Dark Neighborhood where the so there are floodlights above them and and at a certain point they just stay on they mm-hmm. don't go off yeah. ever oh, no sorry they they are always on um from the beginning of the book yeah. they're always on and at a certain point the character is um says oh they bathe everything in a light so harsh mm-hmm. that i fear other people mm-hmm. and i don't i don't really know why i guess it. it's uh if it's not too kind of lame to have a favourite sentence <laughs> the it's a sentence that like keeps coming back to me. And I feel like it is a real kind of sentence that's real central to that story. Mm-hmm. How there's kind of a an a, a sense of certain kinds of light, like yeah. certain kinds of perspectives mm-hmm. almost color your situation mm. i suppose that's kind of what that yeah, yeah, sentence is talking about and under this very harsh light um everything to our character seems hostile mm-hmm. and i suppose it it kind of um to uh, sorry to for i can't think of a better word but illuminates mm. our this sense of that we have again of our own consciousness kind of coloring yeah, 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 yeah. our experience yeah. um and and i guess that's why people uh, the characters in many ways see better in the dark because it has its kind of own illumination mm. which is uh another kind of guidance yeah. yeah yeah and um and they're at that point where they're kind of forced into mm. that darkness and uh to either trust that guidance or to kind of go back or go mad i yeah, suppose yeah, yeah. so yeah <laughs> which feels three a per- options <laughs> a perfect point on
0: which to leave it with our listeners to go back or to go mad <laughs> yeah there we go um of course dark neighborhood is available from shakespeare and company it's uh, from our bricks and mortar store from our website Uh, It's also available from your local independent bookstore, wherever that may be, Mm. and soon in the Czech Republic. Yes. uh, (laughs) I believe it is very (laughs) exciting. Um, All that remains for me to say is, Vanessa,
1: thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thank you you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favourite app or just by sending the link to some of your friends. And don't forget, if you'd like even more from Shakespeare & Company, you can subscribe now through Apple or Patreon for just €3 euros a month. Production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare & Company Paris. All music is by our resident jazz supremo, Alex Freiman, whose album Play It Gentle is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. I'll be back soon. Until then, take care and thanks again for listening.